thought I'd begin this morning with uh, kind of a personal word that fits what we're doing here, though. It struck me for some reason that here I am just turned 60 and have been teaching the Bible since I was 19 years old, uh, 41 years. But it never escapes me what a privilege this is and a, in a sense, horrible responsibility um, to stand um, with my heart and mind best I can, given my limited gifts, um, meaning I'm not you know, the most 100% intellectually competent or spiritually competent person, but I bring who I am to the text. And I sit before it, trying to listen to the Spirit. And I sit before it, obviously, as a member of this community. And it is a, uh, a holy and uh, awesome responsibility that I, uh, I take very serious, but it, it's also a great privilege. So this morning, as we come to this text, what I think Paul's doing is trying to give an imagination to the Corinthian church for their ultimate role in God's purposes and to help them think about that and to prepare for that future by the way they're living their daily lives. So that makes this passage surprisingly, I mean, we probably read it as moralistic and God knows how many times I preached on this passage in evangelistic settings, you know, to show people how they're sinners before God and how they need to come to Christ and fair enough. Um, But if we take serious that Paul has here in mind a more eschatological thought, just meaning God's intended purposes having been completed, what he's actually trying to do then is pull the Corinthians and us into alignment with that sort of end purposes of God. So Paul's logic goes something like this. Knowing what will be true then, and knowing that Jesus brought that future into the present, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and I think would say to us something like this, let that inbreaking of the future, like a baker working with dough, right? So if a baker's working with dough and making cinnamon rolls, that might be one way of working with the dough. Making a pie crust, that would be another way of working with the dough. And so Paul's trying to give us this imagination for that you're sort of like this dough of God in his hands, And let him work with you through the Spirit by his grace and goodness and power so that we're reshaped away from our vested interests in this present age. Did you catch that? So the shaping of God's goodness and power through his Spirit by his grace, shaping us towards, sorry, our future in God, has as a natural byproduct the shaping us away from our tendencies to live based on our vested interest in this age. And it's that kind of thinking that normally forms our justifications to act contrary to God. So try to think with me something like this. I I know it's a bit doctrinal for a Sunday morning, but I think you can get it. So something like election, the calling of God, plus eschatology, what we're going to be then is for Paul, and I would want to, for Paul, for ecclesiology, the church, I think should also be for us as apprentices of Jesus. It's those two things that inform what we think we're doing. So election plus eschatology ought to properly give rise to what we call ecclesiology, the nature and practices of the church. Or for us, the church sort of individually speaking, our sense of discipleship to Christ. 
So what Paul's trying to get them to see is the ultimate cosmic role of the church, and he simply uses lawsuits amongst them as a presenting case. But you should know that this entire passage, like most of Paul, is written second person plural. Paul does not have in mind here simply the plaintiff and the defendant, or even merely the worldview that has brought them to where they are. He has in mind here the church, plural, God's people. And so he says, lawsuits amongst Christians. And these are the kind of things we can't know for sure, but our very best scholars work on these things. Probably what you have here are people who are wealthy, otherwise they wouldn't have anything to care about, right? If you have no possessions, what's there to fight over? So these are people who at least have possessions. They're probably amongst the wealthy in the community, which means they're probably leaders or at least have people, they're people of influence. And the thought that they would sue each other in public courts fills Paul with indignation. You have some of Paul's strongest language in, in the whole Bible in this passage saying, how dare you, the gall of such people. And then imagine this sentence. Imagine a parent saying this today, a pastoral counselor, a Christian therapist. Imagine somebody saying, I say this to shame you. It's like, dude, you got to get up to modern speed here. Like, you don't, you don't say that to people. I say this to shame you. And, you know, we're all probably aware of, all, you know, that, you know, guilt is, um, you know, like an act against the standard. Shame is something you think about yourself or you think others think of you, right? We all know how we've worked with that. Well, what Paul's probably doing here is something a little different than our modern notions of shame and guilt. The, the, the Greek language here just... He, he means something like this. I'm trying to get you to really acknowledge the reality of the situation. I'm trying to wake you up. And he does it through shame, meaning that shame emphasizes the relational aspect of sin. Did you catch that? So if guilt is like you broke a standard, shame, properly speaking, modern or ancient context, emphasizes the relational aspect of sin. And so what Paul's trying to say here is, I want you to see your behaviors as they interplay with the community, and most importantly, as they interplay with what God thinks about this and what God's trying to do to humanity. So he's trying to say, I don't want you to live shamelessly. Do you know that term? He or she's shameless. You know, it, it, I mean, in our day, it basically means something like sociopath. I mean, that would be a stronger way of saying it. Shameless means I don't care how my behavior impacts others. I am shameless. I, it doesn't matter to me how I impact others or what other people think of me. I live shamelessly. That's what that term means. So that a shameless person flaunts their sin even when it hurts others. So again, best we can tell, the background here is something like this, that somebody's been defrauded probably in some sort of business or property dispute. And what Paul wants to say to them is that your failure to care for one another and to act as a community is what's really wrong. And that this is more important than any tiny bit of private property. That's trivial compared to your election and the eschaton. So, you know, I don't know if any of you like this kind of stuff. I mean, I like it, but it just feels so far over my head. It's cosmology. 
And like the pictures even that the Hubble telescope sends back to us or just the way we know the universe is expanding, like that stuff just, you know, my brain breaks, you know, I don't get it. But think about it, this is what Paul's saying. Like, really, you're going to shame each other, shame the community, and shame the purposes of God over, let's say, a bicycle? That's what he's getting at. These are trivial matters. And there's a deep sarcasm here. Because remember, the Corinthians were people who are claiming to have this special enlightened spiritual knowledge. And so this is very sarcastic of Paul when he says, oh, so you're the special ones, but you can't even find somebody to settle trivial pursuits. And so what Paul's getting at here is something like this. Think how long the people of God, what we would think of as Israel, how, think how long they waited for the coming Messiah and the people the Messiah would create. And then Paul's saying, really, you're wrecking all that over your trivial little pursuits? And he's kind of begging them, become who you actually are. Become this true way of being human. But because the Corinthians have so little understanding about who they are actually in Christ, Paul's shooting for a conversion of their imagination, of their worldview. He's trying to reshape their self-identity and self-awareness. He's actually, using a modern term, trying to do a kind of re-socialization, wherein their values and beliefs and behaviors would be re-engineered around election and eschatology, about who they're called to be and will one day be. And so Paul is, in a sense, kind of begging them, act in a way that will prefigure and proclaim the inbreaking of the kingdom. So that rather than your behaviors being a shame on each other and shaming the church in public, that the, that the community would become a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom, an instrument of the goodness of the kingdom coming, a foretaste of what you will actually be in the end. Okay, that's a lot of highfalutin thought, theology. So let's put it on the ground. What about something like this? In terms of think, like thinking of like re-socialization of one's values and beliefs and behaviors. What if as Western Christians, we could move from individualistic materialism, catch that, individualistic materialism to relational generosity? I just think of the implications of that one move. I am not primarily an individual who owns things. As much as I like Western culture, I'm not bashing Western culture and the laws that undergird it. I'm not, in that sense, questioning private property. The question isn't, should we have private property or not, at least not in my mind. The question is, do I interrelate to that with individualistic materialism as the software that runs my life? Or do I think of my private property in more relational, generous terms? Now that's formation in Christ, away from most of our default positions. And so for Paul, what's so galling to him is that the fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you're already completely defeated. And that fighting it out in court in front of the public who doesn't get the church means by definition that you will willfully harm each other. You will choose to harm each other in these fights. Why? 
because you have these disordered desires that lead to seeking and craving the wrong things. So I was thinking this week, if I just thought of, again, my 40-year career as a pastor, I don't know how many Christians I've known who've gotten divorced. I mean, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. Christians who willfully go into court And honestly, I'm not bashing our court system. I'm not bashing attorneys, nothing like that. I'm thinking spiritually. I'm thinking of two human beings who have been married and who have given themselves as one flesh. They've borne children and they go to court and beat the crap out of each other and justify it. Because who's gonna get the house? So see, that's materialistic individualism, not relational generosity. And we could go on and on talking about this. Business disputes, HR disputes. Again, I've been supervising churches since I was 26 years old. I could count scores of cases where Christian employees of churches or ministries sued those ministries in public court to get what they wanted. And then Paul says these radical things that again, you think he's ridiculous. I mean, look at your text. Why not rather be wronged? You just want to go, what the H-E double toothpicks is that? What universe does that come out of? Like, who would choose to be wronged? And somebody would probably psychoanalyze you to say you're, you know, acting like a doormat or something, and you need to, you know, stand for who you are. What, what could he be possibly talking about? Well, what if it's something just as simple, that when you think of the big picture from election to eschaton, that it is actually better to be wronged than to do wrong. It's better for God, it's better for you, it's better for your brothers and sisters, it's better for the church, and it's better for God's ultimate intention to actually be wronged than to do wrong. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is an aspect of living this sort of cross-shaped life that Paul in his letters always wants to put before us. So the logic for Paul here is something like this. Even if you win, you lose. Why? And again, this sounds crazy. You lose because you show that you don't have the ability to endure injury. That you'll do anything to not endure injury. And as you do so, Paul wants to say, the church loses its credibility by you taking it public. And so for Paul, it's something like this. Even if you gain some temporal advantage, you stand in the greater danger, you saw it in your text, of losing your eternal destiny, your calling, your inheritance in Christ. That is to say, if you cultivate that kind of person for whom your basic operating system is temporal advantage, well, by definition, you're not living in election and eschaton. You're living in some other reality. And so motivated by self-protection usually and self-gain, we have a thousand reasons and rationales and excuses for not following this biblical worldview, but for following a sort of base selflessness. And all of these things, in my experience, again, just sort of my pastoral counseling experience, all of these things begin with the word but. But you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she took from me. If you did, if you could understand my injury, then you could understand my behavior. So that look at me, so that injury becomes the basis for action rather than election and eschaton. And so in a sense, Paul's saying something very simple. 
From what do we derive our sense of ourself and how life works? One way to just use sort of a humorous, although it's actually not funny, but to use sort of a cartoonish, you know, example, Hatfields and the McCoys. But if you ever just go, just go look at that on Wikipedia or something, it's actually not funny at all. Scores of human beings were murdered. Or think of gang warfare here in Southern California, the Crips and the Bloods. Or I grew up here, I grew up in Santa Ana, California, where there were Hispanic gangs everywhere. And they literally killed each other. And so Paul's seeing that sort of thing versus think of the worldview of those Amish families. Remember when that guy went in and I think shot 10 and five or six of them were killed, if I remember right? These little children, like four, five, six, seven years old. The mother of the shooter, you got me? The young man who shot the kids, his mother tells this story. The Amish, she said, came to my house the night of the shooting. This gives me chills. They wanted to say to me that whatever happened, they didn't want me to leave the community. The victim's families attended her son's funeral. And this mother of the shooter says, there are not words to describe how that made my husband and I feel. She said, for the mother and father who had just lost not one, but both of their daughters at the hand of our son to come up to us and be the first ones to greet us. Wow, she said, is there anything in this life that we should not forgive? So now that just begs the question, what would be the condition or state of the heart that would choose to set aside repaying evil for evil or not justling for economic advantage. And I wanna say the first is understanding. That's the element of a human heart. It first of all understands that such conduct is fundamentally inconsistency, inconsistent with my true identity in Christ, election, eschaton. Second of all, the person who can forgive like that is full of confidence in Jesus. They know they're always safe in the kingdom of God. They are seeking first the kingdom of God. They are finding their life there. They know that like the birds of the air, they can be relaxed. They know that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not live in a state of wanting. The spirit animates my life, Paul would want to say. And that I lived aimed at the coming fullness of God's kingdom. Therefore, I am safe even in suffering. So when Paul says... This passage that, you know, these sentences that we, we think this passage is all about, when he says some of you were wrongdoers and were thus not inheriting the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, sinners. And by the way, we'll get to the interesting sexual bits later. I'm not ignoring them. Next week's our anniversary service. The week after that, we'll try to dive into the interesting sexual bits that I know you're all so curious about. So invite all your friends and family <laughs> two weeks from now, and we will have the sex talk. <laughs> I know we're all waiting for. And so Paul says, though you came out of the world into the church in those conditions, he says, I want to reshape your imagination if you look at those three words, washed, sanctified, and justified. I want to shape your imagination about who you actually are. You're not actually an idolater or an adulterer or a swindler. Actually, you were washed of that filth from your former lifestyle. 
You were sanctified, which just simply means you were set apart, election and eschaton for God's holy purposes. And you were justified, that is to say, you were made right to step into that kingdom. So what Paul's picturing, and I would commend to you, is something like this. I was greedy, but now we're generous and hospitable. I used to practice my own brand of sexual sin, but now we respect others and we honor God with our bodies. I used to be a slanderer, but now we guard others' reputations. I used to be a consumer, but now I'm a sharer of God's good gifts. I used to be a racist, but now I'm a part of God's family made up of all races and all ethnicities and all tribes and all tongues. And so what Paul is wanting to set before us is an imagination that new life in the kingdom is meant to free us from the normal rationalizations and bickering that leads to public lawsuits amongst Christians. Now, having said all this, and knowing that there's probably a handful of attorneys in the room, um, let me say that the civil system is different than what Paul's talking about here. And that actually as Christians, we have a beautiful, beautiful alternative. There are innumerable retired judges and attorneys who have given themselves, the, oftentimes in their retirement, but not always. Sometimes they're still working and do it pro bono. We have before us an enormous blessing of probably a, a half a dozen of great Christian organizations that provide at a very minimum conflict resolution. You could move up from there to informal mediation where I think Paul would wanna say, why don't you try working these things out for yourself and learn and grow as you go? Do you know that if one of you did get in a dispute, a dispute with another in this church, that we've probably got 20 people in this church who have plenty of wisdom. You put two or three of them together, make a little court, you know, not really, tongue-in-cheek court. Guarantee you, we have, we have plenty of people in this room who would easily have the wisdom to help Christians sort out 99 out of 100 things. Even if it was business stuff, real estate stuff, anything. We, we, I tell you, we, they're, they're right here in front of us. You could move from informal motive, um, mediation to formal mediation, to binding arbitration. This is all available to us in the community of God. We don't have to go outside. So concluding, I think I would want to say that this Corinthian passage, while listing bad stuff that normally gets all our attention, and as I said, we'll come back to it, it actually, I think, answers a more fundamental question, and that's this. Who am I? And Paul would want to say, to answer that question, go to election and eschaton. If you go to God's choosing of you and what he's in the end making of you, that will answer the question, who am I? My friend Dallas Willard would want to say in answering that question, kind of as a philosopher might, that you're a never ceasing spiritual being, that's who you are. A never, spirit, a never ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. And Channeling Paul here, of course, Dallas would want to say, and we will actively participate in the future governance of the universe, joining with Jesus to reign with him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. So we come to our quiet time this morning. You may remember the words of Jesus who said that as we were faithful over a few things in this present phase of our life,
that that would develop in us a kind of character that when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth, we would also be entrusted with many things. So as we think of our life this morning, maybe you could sit for a moment and just wonder with the Spirit, to what small thing might God be asking me to commit to this morning or recommit? To what source of action? What small thing might I do to live into this Pauline vision of the church being the people of God now and forever.